Hello. Welcome to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast. I'm Rajan Khanna. Fantastic Fiction at KGB is a monthly reading series held on the third Wednesday of every month at the famous KGB bar in Manhattan's East Village. Fantastic Fiction is hosted by Ellen Datlow and Matthew Kressel and features up-and-comers and luminaries in the fields of science fiction, fantasy, and horror. The following audio was recorded live at the KGB bar, so please excuse the various background noises, bumps in the night, and other disturbances that you might hear. It's a live reading in New York City, and anything can and often does happen. And now, on to this month's reading. We hope you enjoy the following recording, and we thank you for listening. Any other announcements, Ellen? What, what's, what do we have going on? We don't know. Anyway, happy, happy 2019. Hope your 2019 has started off well. Uh, yeah. Hope you'll, hope you'll uh, keep coming in the series. Um, as I said, I'm very excited about our readers tonight. Uh, Victor, Le- Victor Laval is read here. This is your third time reading here? Yeah. And Julie, this is your first time. So welcome, Julie, to, to Fantastic Fiction. Um, Julie's going to be our first reader. Julie C. Day has published over 30 stories in venues, such as Black Static, Podcastle, and the Cincinnati Review. Her genre-bending debut collection, Uncommon Miracles, which can I show the it's, Look at this beautiful cover. Can you see this? It's like a, it's like a deer with like mushrooms and grass and ferns growing on it. It's so awesome. Anyway, it's called Uncommon Miracles. Is that cool? Uh, check it out. Um, Uncommon Miracles was released by PS Publishing in October 2018. Julie lives in a small New England town with her family and various pets. You can also find her on Twitter at ThisJulieDay or on her blog, StillWingingIt.com. Here's Julie C. Day. Thank you. That's good. All right. Hello. I'm actually going to try doing something a bit of a tightrope act, but I think it's going to go well. I'm going to read two shorter pieces in this time, one from the collection and one that's coming out in an anthology in 2019. So I'll start with the latter. Newest first. It's called Bluebeard Surrender. There are over 2,900 species of snakes in this world. The rough-scaled bush viper is one of the 25 percenters, poisonous from the moment it's born. And though it's true that ability doesn't infer intent any more than predilection equates with action, the muttered, you can do it, of such creatures always seethes below the surface. Peralt's Bluebeard made the same bloody choice with each of his seven wives. In the end, the secrets behind locked doors are always revealed. So it should come as no surprise that Eiling Merler's bedroom housed a reptile, a bearded dragon, by the time she was eight, even though Eiling's mother, Temperance, had been very clear. Temperance had no interest in thawed mice carcasses or the needs of pinky mice famished snakes, but Eiling, with bluebeard-like tenacity, pressed on. Snakes don't even have eyelids, Mommy. They never close their eyes. Isn't that cool? Sure, baby, I guess. 
but not in this house. What Temperance liked best was the real housewives of Beverly Hills and a not-so-secret Salem menthol after Eiling went to bed. But eventually, Eiling's bearded dragon was also okay. Unlike all those pet store snakes, dragon echidna liked to wave hello. At least that was Temperance's take after one too many Eiling soliloquies concerning the ventral scales and flexible jaws of Eiling's close-held passion. Eiling actually liked Dragon Echidna, and for whatever dumb reason, she really tried to make it work. But a lizard's scales don't differentiate into shields and plates. Its tongue remains unforked, and always it refuses to slither. Best friends, as it turned out, didn't help at all, even when they'd known you for 15 goddamn years. Chad, I've had echidna since I was in second grade. Dude, that's seven years of explaining that echidna's wave is a submission stance. Eiling sat on her twin bed, legs stretched out, trying to keep them still. She's unbelievable. Mom actually thinks echidna is her friend. Ball pythons are much more social. Plus, I'm old enough to handle the mice thing myself. Eiling glanced at Chad and frowned. Instead of looking at her, he was rifling through her topmost desk drawer. Chad? Yeah? He glanced at Eiling, an almost blank stare, and then returned to the desk, pulling at a yellow and brown beetle encased in resin, followed by an old friendship bracelet, and finally the petal-covered stationery box Eiling had had since she was five. Look, can you just focus for a second on what I'm fucking saying? Ball pythons are shy. They definitely won't squeeze you to death. They don't even grow that big. I'm more than old enough. I don't know, Eiling. I think your mom's got a point. Reptiles aren't like dogs. They don't give a shit about us. Chad lifted the lid off the old stationary box and stared in seeming dis disbelief. Really? Still with the snake's skins? Chad, stop trying to change the subject. You know I did the research on ball pythons. Thing is, I'm just not sure you did it all that well. Jesus, I really don't know why I put up with you. Eiling felt a strange ache in her jaw, a sense that her hair and skin no longer belonged on her maturing skull. But Eiling's problem wasn't aching bones or pawed over tchotchkes. Eiling's biggest problem was Chad himself. He wouldn't stop inserting his bullshit ideas into her life. In the end, a bearded dragon, no matter how badass, can only scratch a girl's viperous itch for so long. Echidna's dead? Chad, why didn't you text me? I told you the motel had cell service. Eiling stood in the apartment's open doorway, feeling a cool breeze wrap itself around her neck and shoulders. Had she cracked her bedroom window before she'd left? I'm sorry. I don't even know how the heat lamp got knocked out of place. It's not like I killed the thing on purpose. But Chad looked uncomfortable rather than sorry 
and he hadn't even bothered to use Echidna's name. Eiling's mom stepped between them. Here, dear, take the cash. You did what you could. She handed Chad his pet-sitting cash, and then Chad was out the door, heading home with his $20 and her mother's thanks in his ears. He must feel awful. The least I can do is pay him, Temperance said, as though disappointed in Eiling for being upset. Dead stays dead, a sibilant voice whispered as Eiling stared at Echidna's empty cage. You can't ever take dead back. Now that was a viewpoint that made some sense. Dead definitely stayed dead every time. The blue-gray haze appeared that very night, the one Chad and Temperance didn't seem to notice even when Eiling was near. The one that seemed to require sunglasses for longer periods of time each day. And then the school year was over, done, gone, along with teachers and bus drivers and after-school friends. Down by the river while Temperance was at work, it was just Eiling, the water snakes, and of course, her oldest friend, the ever-present Chad. The wetlands that ran alongside the Farsdale River were filled with smooth-barked maples and birches. The cries of wrens and warblers interwove with a steady thrum of cicadas hiding in the long grasses. Water snakes lounged in curving masses on the thin stretch of mudflats that flanked the Farsdale Riverbank. Patterned snakelets not much bigger than a shoestring sprawled among the darker bodies of the adults. When Chad and Eiling were sick of each other's voices, or when Chad was sick of his own, Eiling would count the increasing number of snakes while Chad skimmed rocks through the river's shallows. Fifty-seven on the ground, Eiling reported. Five more than yesterday. She adjusted her sunglasses and raised her face to the sun's midday heat. Where the hell do they come from? Look at them. They're a fucking hazard. Chad scowled as he picked up a nearby stick. This is their spot as much as yours, Eiling replied, not really meaning it. They're pests, Chad insisted, poking at one of the smaller snakes. He took a sudden step back as it hissed, mouth wide open, fangs revealed. Right. Eiling adjusted her sunglasses, walked to the water's edge, and grabbed a nearby maple's lowest branch. Eiling, what are you doing? Haven't finished the count. Snakes love trees. She moved her lips upward, pretending a smile, then hoisted herself into the maple's crook. Farther out from the trunk, water snakes rested in the branches that overhung the river. Fuckers are going to get you. They're completely non-venomous, Eiling said. The skin around her skull felt tight, her mouth overly full. Vicious bite, though. Was that a lisp? Your shirt's all smeared with tree crap, Chad opted. White was a stupid choice. He wandered toward the river and onto the nearby dock. I guess. Eiling removed her sunglasses and looked down at Chad. It felt so damn good. Eiling's sclera, the whites, had vanished four days ago. Her eyelids, the bruised red of drying rose petals, had dropped off two days later. Now Eiling's vision was protected. 
by a milky ocular scale. Now she was certain. The haze would completely clear after her final shed, eyeing the scaled, eyeing the reptilian viper. Hard to tell the difference between water snakes and the more poisonous fuckers, Chad warned as Eiling inched over the water along one of the thickest of the maple branches and its tangle of serpents. Does it matter? Eiling tried to subdue the lingering S sound for just a bit longer. I guess not, if you're an idiot. Chad sounded bored, almost sleepy, but Eiling and her lidless eyes weren't fooled. He was watching for her response, sure he knew what it would be. Ha ha, funny man. Eiling smiled, her lips held carefully together. Just trying to be helpful. Stretched out over the slow-moving river, the maple's bark felt as smooth as a snakelet's scales. Eiling knew her snake lore. It took some time for a hatchling's roughness to appear. It took time for their skin nub of an egg tooth to drop from their mouths so they could speak unfettered. That was the reason her transformation had taken so long. She'd needed that time to form the necessary hardness. Up in her maple tree, Eiling felt the sun-warm scales of a water snake slide across her legs while another, untroubled, watched her from only inches away. Snakes, Eiling knew, tasted heat. They saw best at night when teenage girls and their secret dreams blossomed forth. And on days like today, when the snakes were writhing, Eiling couldn't think of anything quite so beautiful. Those night girl voices deserved to be heard. Forget Chad and his oh-so-helpful comments. She had a few of her own. When Eiling lunged, it wasn't a game or a dare. It was an explosion of movement, followed by a thrashing in the shallows before the arms, his arms, finally sank below. And Eiling joined all those girls with their slitted nostrils and eyes that lacked the merest hint of white, prowling the riverbank and the trees. Bye-bye, baby boy. Bye-bye, my not-so-true friend. Snakes knew how to care for themselves from the first minutes of birth. They didn't back down, and they definitely didn't show any mercy. True snake fact. They didn't even attempt to listen or understand. That's the end of the book. And now I'll read another short piece from the actual collection. <laughs> um, this one's called The Woman in the Woods. Papa's death in the orphan train. No matter how many times Horace told her different, Eliza knew her brother was wrong. The woman in the woods didn't look the least bit dead. The woman in the woods looked beautiful, with her long flowing hair and a leaf gold cape. She made Eliza think of an ancient Irish queen. Of course, the woman didn't speak as she made her way along the trail. The woman was communing with her subjects, the dead and dying trees. Sometimes Eliza suspected her brother's heart was an ancient stone, rigid as a dead man's body. You don't try hard enough to remember, 
Horace accused whenever he caught her following the leaf cape of the woman. I think that's why mother hasn't come. Horace's fingers were skeletal thin and oh so hungry, his eyes dark as empty holes. Once upon a time, before the scream of metal against metal had mixed with all those other screams, before she and Horace and the orphan train had arrived in the woods, Horace had been different. Back then, Horace had loved the hills on the west side of Manhattan almost as much as he loved these woods. I just realized the importance of <laughs> the appropriateness of this choice. Okay. He'd loved rolling barrels through the alley next to their apartment and yelling at the top of his lungs. One autumn day, he tucked one of their father's many hand-rolled cigarettes behind his ear and chased a wooden barrel down the steep hill on Strathmore Street, grinning and making Eliza swear she wouldn't tell, even as he flipped and fell and lay sprawled across the paving stones at the bottom. Eliza had screamed then, too, despite Horace's laughter, wrapping her arms around his neck. It's all right, Eliza. Horace had that sweet smile slipping across his face, the one he saved just for her. It's all right, he repeated. I promise. I'm not going to die. And being little, Eliza had believed him. Horace, it seemed to Eliza, had stopped smiling once they reached the Iowa woods. Cholera, Horace had called it when their father died. Old Mr. Gold looked just like that. Horace said as he leaned over the straw mattress, looking at the skeletal man that used to be their father. Horace the truth-teller, Horace the unflinching, Horace dragging Eliza down the stairs and away. But Mama is still... Orphans, Horace cut in, ignoring the way Eliza pinched at his hand. Good as, anyway. That was the beginning. Memories, Horace said, were the important thing. Memories stopped you yearning. Memories kept you from forgetting who you really were. The women at the New York Children's Aid Society gave Horace and Eliza black, shiny shoes. They made sure both Eliza and Horace were scrubbed clean. Then they proclaimed Eliza and Horace ready for their new lives. Some kids waved from the train's many windows. And why not? Goodbye, dead father. Goodbye, teary-eyed and raging mother. Goodbye, strangers who ignored your hunger and walked on by. New York, Pennsylvania, Michigan, Illinois. And then came Iowa and the lightning storm. Everything a blur of screams and tumbling limbs and sudden flashes of color against the night. Some memories Eliza wanted to forget. The freshly fallen corpses that had littered the clearing the splinters of yellowish wood and twisted lengths of bark. Just beyond the train, Eliza had recognized the bodies of the two matrons, still wearing their special matron's capes. Though eventually they were gone or decomposed, as Horace repeatedly explained. After that came the winter snow and the silence, with only the groan of the leafless trees, until the woman appeared. The woman in the woods was nothing like the matrons or the mother Horace kept talking on and on about. No matter how often the woman and her golden cape wandered away, she always returned. I'm going to go for a little while longer, but I think I'm going to run out of time. So, 
Horus and the Passage of Time. Before the trees and the night sky, there had been a city, train station, soot-stained. Some kids, like a Horus and Eliza, had a parent in tow. Most did not. They all wore clean clothes, black shoes, combed hair. A few kids had a valise or a cloth bag. Horace and Eliza sat together in a corner of the train car, pressed tightly together, holding nothing but each other while some of the bigger boys thrust their heads through an open window, waving goodbye. Only the matron spoke to them, checking their names off her list. Eliza hadn't wanted to talk to anyone besides Horace anyway. When the train first arrived in these woods, Horace used to cook roots they dug up in the coals of the fire. He used to make forest tea in an old tin can. Now the can sat unused. No more train station clocks, no more conductors with watches, no more New York City time, and yet they kept waiting. Horace had explained so many times Eliza could recite the reasons herself. When something disappeared, rotted, floated away, it was gone and could never come back. That was why they had to wait for Mother. That was why mist and floating and following those matrons wasn't right. In the woods, Eliza relied on the sun to reveal the time of day. The maples, the sumac, the ferns helped out with the seasons of the year. And Horace confirmed how old she was. You're such a baby, Eliza, he said. You still need someone to take care of you, he said. Eliza, when are you going to grow up? Who needs calendars and birthday candles? Eliza had Horace. Time pressed against Eliza's shoulders. Time sucked the last gasp of air from Eliza's lungs. Time, Horace said, kept flowing even if no one watched. Mother, he promised, would come. Eliza was no longer sure. Time, it seemed to Eliza, was the only powerful magic left, that and the woman. Though with each day the woman's magic seemed less real. The woman didn't even open her eyes. Some days she seemed more gray than golden, a smoke phantom among the trees. I'll read one more section and then I'll stop. Enduring. Some moments are about enduring. Some about forgetting. Other moments have to be re-explained. Once there had been a man and a woman. They lived in a tenement in the west end of the city. Horace and Eliza lived with them too. The man wore a black cap. His faded trousers weren't smeared with forest dirt. A hand-rolled cigarette hung from his lips. When the man talked, his cigarette moved up and down. The conductor had held out his watch, showing Eliza the time. Still, Eliza refused to go alone. The man said he understood how Eliza felt. Of course Horace could go, too. People rushed across the platform, drowning people and tear-stained people. Children filled the train cars, leaned out of half-open windows, pressed their faces against the soot-speckled glass. And all the while, the conductor was holding out his watch, showing both Eliza and Horace, explaining why the train had to pull away. You kids are the lucky ones. A new home? A new life? It's way past time. Silently, Eliza disagreed. 
Lucky was finding a silver dollar on the sidewalk. Lucky was catching your mother laughing, laughing somewhere nearby. Lucky was noticing your father's smile. Lucky was not riding an overfull train away from the man and the woman and everyone else Elida, Eliza had ever known. Everyone except for Horace. And I'll stop there. originally published in a, a magazine called Necessary Fiction. Oh, this one? Oh, this one is published in um, Gorgon's Tales of Transformation, which is... It has come out? No, it hasn't. It's coming out in 2019. Um, so it's an anthology of Gorgon's stories. Thank you very much. Well, we're going to take a break now for about 10 minutes or so and uh, have a drink and come on back. Welcome back. Welcome back to KGB. Hello. Shh. Okay. All right. Shh. Very good. Great. Thank you. Okay. Oh, something that Matt did forget. We rescheduled um, Nicole corner of start see I don't know Stace is it for I think October I'm sorry I'm not talking to I think it was no October uh, she couldn't make it last month at the last minute so we rescheduled her for October just so you know huh yeah right forget it you're not our next reader is Victor Laval who is the author of seven works of fiction and one graphic novel his most recent novel, The Changeling, won the World Fantasy Award and the British Fantasy Award for Best Novel and the Dragon Award for Best Horror Novel. Yes. His novella, The Ballad of Black Tom, won the Shirley Jackson Award, the British Fantasy Award, the This Is Horror Award for Novella of the Year, and was a finalist for the Yugo. Um, which is really unusual because I know the Yugo started having things that are which is just strange to me. But anyway. <coughs> I mean, the Nebulas also, they did a, they, a horror story one, I think. Didn't it win the human, the human story? Anyway. The, 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 uh, the awards are getting really mixy, which is great, mixing the genres, but it was a surprise. Um, he lives in New York City with his family and teaches writing at Columbia University. Please welcome Victor Laval. No. Thanks, everybody. Uh, oh, thank you. Uh, cheers. Salud. Um, uh, it's so good to be back here. Uh, I really appreciate you both, uh, Ellen and Matthew, for uh, bringing me back. Um, uh, and it's uh, such a pleasure to read tonight with Julie. Um, I wanted to read... Uh, so uh, Ellen mentioned uh, a novella that she actually edited and published called The Ballad of Black Tom. Uh, that came out two years ago that was a sort of wrestling with reworking of an H.P. Lovecraft story. Uh, it was a book, a story that I thought for sure no one would want at all. No one would be interested in a mix of H.P. Lovecraft and Black Lives Matter was my feeling. And uh, I was uh, pleasantly surprised that that was not true. Um, and so uh, more recently, I felt like there was another Lovecraft story that I kind of wanted to wrestle with, and I started working on a novella, uh, short novel, that would um, wrestle with another one of his stories, and I thought uh, it would be fun to read just the first ten pages or so of that uh, book, 
Uh, and then it would be fun for me personally if later on people guess uh, which Lovecraft uh, <laughs> story I'm messing with. And there's plenty of clues in here. I think at a certain point, the clue, it will be obvious. Um, but the name of this uh, story is Up From Slavery. I'm going to start with the pregnant woman because she survived. 79 other Amtrak passengers weren't so lucky. 243 people boarded the Lakeshore Limited at Penn Station. We left at 3.40 p.m. I had an appointment in Syracuse, me and a couple of lawyers in a windowless room that occupied my mind more than who was sitting nearby, so I didn't notice the pregnant woman until the train had flipped. Our car actually lifted off the tracks and my body followed suit two seconds later. Then I looked to my right and there's a pregnant woman with her head tucked down between her legs, crash position. She turned out to be a lot smarter than me. She must have been paying attention. News reports eventually said the train hit a curve in the tracks going at 106 miles per hour. Of course the damn thing derailed. You'd think a disaster like that would be loud, but it was the complete opposite. My head hit the seat in front of me, and then I couldn't hear at all, dying in silence. That's what I thought was going to happen. The quiet scared me as much as the crash, but obviously I didn't die, though I did get knocked around real hard. And after my senses returned, I looked over, and there was the pregnant woman, patting her belly and talking to it. I watched her lips moving. She looked surprisingly calm. Maybe she was too busy thinking about the child to worry about herself. That's an admirable quality. For a second or two, I admired her. Then I returned to our regularly scheduled train crash. <laughs> Next thing I did was check my watch, but my watch was gone. Like an idiot, I spent a good 30 seconds digging for it, as if finding it mattered. I don't know why I did that. Oh wait, yes I do, I was in shock. But finally I reminded myself about what was important and I pulled myself upright and I crawled toward the pregnant woman. I think I asked if she needed help. I couldn't hear my own voice, didn't even feel the bass in my throat, so maybe it wasn't just my ears that were damaged. That's what I was thinking. I must have said something, though, because the woman looked up from her belly and then pointed toward the roof. The escape hatch had popped open. It took a second for me to realize she was actually pointing at a window. The train had landed on its side and the window had popped off. She pointed up at it again. Gray day outside. I wondered if it would rain. Then I got myself up and helped the pregnant woman to her feet. She might have been anywhere from three to eight months pregnant. How the hell should I know? <laughs> she reached toward the window, giving me a sense of how much of a boost she needed. I went down on a knee. Must have looked like one weird-ass proposal. Still, she accepted, planted one boot on my thigh, and stepped up. I laced my hands and held her other foot up. Then I rose to my feet. Once she had her arms and head through, I bent low and basically pushed her up as hard as I could. She looked down at me, but we both knew she wasn't going to be pulling my ass out of there. That's some movie type shit. I waved her off, told her not to worry. She thanked me. I heard her say it. That's when I realized my hearing had returned and I clapped. She held my gaze for one long second and I imagined she was wishing me well. Maybe she was just in shock. Now it was time for me to get the fuck out of Dodge. I threaded my way along the train car, figured I'd have to come to a doorway soon. Maybe one of the cars had been torn open and I could stumble out that way. Along with the details of the crash, there were survivors who spoke of a man who helped them climb out of the wreckage. More than a few people mentioned this. When they looked back to thank the guy, he had already moved on. The description of this man matched me. 
right down to the pattern of my tie. I know it's vain, but I feel proud of that. Still, I have to admit some complicated feelings. The public would blame the train's engineer for the catastrophic accident, but it wasn't him. I helped those survivors, yes, but I caused the, crank, the train crash, too. I wasn't alone, though. Two of us deserve the blame. None of this is going to make sense if I don't back up a little bit. Three months, that's all I need. I was living in New York, tucked away in a studio apartment in Sunnyside, Queens. 29 and barely getting by, but at least I had a job. Freelance copy editor. Yeah, soak in the prestige. <laughs> Still, I got to work from home and I read, the books. I read books all day and night. As far as life outcomes go, it could have been worse. It had been worse, in fact, but I don't need to talk about that yet. One of the details of a life, the life of a freelance copy editor is that you get used to having messengers show up at your door. The internet age allows for files to be shot across the globe, sure, but at a certain point there's a manuscript that requires one last pass, and I always did better if I had the old pen and paper in front of me. So publishers, big press, small press, university presses, would eventually have to pay for that if they were working with me. So when I got the ring on the buzzer, I figured it was just another manuscript delivery. The only thing I did before answering the door was to make sure I was wearing pants. <laughs> another plus of the home life, the at-home life, is that you can make your living in your underwear. After I signed on the guy's touch screen, he handed me one little envelope. That's it. I started to ask a question, but that dude had done his job and he was gone. No doubt he had to make 25 more stops that day. Inside the apartment, I read the name on the envelope, making sure it was mine, Simon Dust. People always think I've changed my name legally. It sounds made up, but it's the name they gave me when I joined the foster care system here in New York. Maybe a judge chose it for me or my first social worker, I don't know. No one ever explained the choice. They only told me what, uh, what I would be, be called, Simon Dust. So in a sense, someone did my, make up my name, it just wasn't me. So this envelope had my name on it. Then I looked at the return address and found the name of a law firm, Pabody and Associates. In my life, there had never been a good reason to get a letter from a firm, so I put the envelope down and took off my pants. <laughs> I could at least be comfortable when I found out that some old credit card had come back to haunt me. Instead, I opened the letter to learn something more surprising. My father was dead. I read this news and then I took a long breath and then I went back to the kitchen where I finished the copy edits on a book that was due in, that, in a month. In the evening, I read the letter again. The feeling of being creamed by a car had passed so I could focus on the words and their meaning. The first interesting fact about my father was that he existed at all. The second was his name, Thomas Edwin Dyer, T-E-D. Okay, I thought, good to know. The next surprise came in the body of the second paragraph. My father had died, and as his next of kin, I had inherited his home and all its effects. Next of kin. I hadn't even been able, ever been able to track this guy down, not him or my mother, and now, apparently, I owned his house and everything in it. I may have mentioned barely getting by. My studio apartment would have fit snugly in the corner of someone else's studio apartment. <laughs> Maybe this absentee bastard would turn out to have a few things I could sell. That's how I quickly got to thinking. Does this make me sound mercenary? Probably so. That evening, I sent in the copy edits on the book just to be sure I'd get a paycheck sooner than later. 
Then I booked a ticket to where my father had been living, Syracuse, New York. Syracuse, New York. Talk about the decline of the West. <laughs> At the train station, I went to the taxi stand. It, it looked more like a bus station stop. One sedan sat there, the driver inside. I had to get up close to see the dude was fast asleep. Didn't wake up when I knocked on the window, but then I tried the passenger door, and as soon as it opened with a rusty old squeak, the guy snapped to attention and asked me where I wanted to go. Asleep at the wheel. This turned out to describe the city of Syracuse as a whole. <laughs> I gave him my father's address, and as we drove, the decaying upstate city scrolled past my window. You could tell that once this place had been a powerhouse, but now all the factories were shuttered and the potholes in the street resembled a bad case of tooth decay. My place in New York had been hard, but I realized how different that same hardship felt out here. This whole city, hell, this whole region had been cut loose from the line and sent off to drift. No rescue teams in sight. I reached my father's house. Sorry, that doesn't sound right even now. I reached the home of Thomas Edwin Dyer. A two-story deal, aluminum siding, and bars on the windows. It looked like an old piggy bank with only a few pennies still left inside. A street full of run-down one-family houses. Even for Syracuse, this block looked rough. It was the middle of the day on a Thursday, nobody else out. Even after I paid, the cabbie seemed hesitant to unlock his doors. Maybe he wanted me to crawl out the window. Once I did step out, the guy sped away. I barely had time to slip my bag out the damn vehicle. You'd think the lawyer handling my father's estate would have to meet me there, hand me the keys, but that's old school thinking. The lawyer had simply attached a key safe to the bars by one of the front windows. All I had to do was punch in the four digit code. One, nine, three, I think you're looking for this. A woman's voice right beside me. I looked up from where I was squatting and found myself looking at a hand holding a silver key. But when I reached for it, the hand closed tight and the woman took two steps back. My husband is right next door, she said as I stood. Lucky him, at least he's indoors. She wore her hair short and a pair of green earrings that nearly matched her eyes. She had narrow shoulders and a narrow waist. One of those people who are healthy in her 60s and still runs half marathons on ruined knees. While I was assessing her, she did the same to me. I must have looked road weary. The train ride had taken six hours and the miles showed. You don't work for that lawyer, she said. No, I pointed at the key safe, but that lawyer told me how to get into my father's house. Now she frowned. I'm sorry, but the man who lived here, Thomas Edwin Dyer, I said. She looked at the house up to the second story window he went by Teddy. That's what everyone called him. Not me, I said. She looked back at the house next door, her home. It had a lawn that had been well cared for and clean windows. Imagine finding one clean sock in the dirty laundry basket. That's what her house looked like in this neighborhood. If this is a scam or something, I can always call the cops. Why would you think that? Well, to start, Teddy lived here for 30 years and I have never seen you before. And well, Teddy was... She looked at me again and cut off the rest of the sentence. It took me a moment to figure out what she wanted to say, but couldn't. White? Is that what you mean? She didn't answer, but she did look away. Look, I don't want this to turn hostile. 
I didn't understand why simply saying the word white made white people assume things were going to turn ugly. <laughs> if he was white, I said, then my mother wasn't. I might not have known my parents, but it didn't take Miss Marple to figure out that I was mixed. The woman rolled her tongue around inside her mouth while she let this idea roll around in her brain. Finally, she said, then I'll go in with you. That's not necessary. I put my hand out for the key. I mean, who was this lady to presume the right? She looked at my hand, then back up at my face, where before she'd been doing her best gatekeeper grimace, she now seemed less forceful. Look, she said, I'm Helen. I'm the one who found him. I looked from her back to the house, then back to her. He died in there? Dead two weeks before I finally let myself in. She showed me the key. We had his spare and he had ours. I went in because of all the circulars piled up by the front door. Teddy wasn't the type to just leave them there. She sighed, so I went inside, found him in the recliner. She raised her eyebrows. Sorry. Now Helen gestured toward the door, using the key to point. I didn't know Teddy had a son. Let me take you in. I nodded, but before she opened the door, she walked back onto her property, up the front steps. She opened the door and shouted loud enough for me to hear, Harvey, Harvey, I'm going into Teddy's place for a minute. His son is here. Harvey must have said something, but I couldn't hear it. I wasn't listening. I didn't know Teddy had a son. My face had gone flush when she said it. Bad enough that he hadn't raised me, but it was a deeper cut to realize I'd never even been mentioned. My father's home was a monument to mania. The first floor of the house was little more than a garage and a mudroom, a place to kick off the boots and coat before climbing a set of stairs to the second floor where my father had done all his living, his dying too, apparently. The mudroom should have been my first clue. There were so many stacks of old crap that I couldn't be sure of the color of the floor. Boxes and boxes, all beaten up and weathered, stacked high too. The topmost boxes were at my chest level. Helen's small frame looked dwarfed. She might as well have been weaving through a minotaur's maze. She waved me forward and I had to turn sideways to get through the boxes. The mudroom gave off the odor of mildew and madness. Then we went upstairs and the shit got even worse. A two-bedroom home with a living room, kitchen, and bathroom, and every room had been colonized. By what? By a bunch of bullshit, as far as I could tell. <laughs> a room full of old magazine and newspapers, another for records from the big band era, nothing more recent than 1946. There might have been a bed in one of the bedrooms, but I couldn't find it. Instead, there were stacks of maps, printouts of travel journals from the early 20th century, the kind of stuff you can now find through a dutiful computer search through the archives of some institute or library. All of it related to Antarctica. And yet I found no computer in the house, so I guessed he'd printed all this stuff at the local library over the course of a decade or four. What a useless life. There was a single path weaving through the mess. On this floor, the mound stood as tall as me. It really looked like the man had been building himself a fortress inside the walls of his home, layers of protection. The path led, finally, to one thing there in the living room, the recliner. This was where I found him, Helen said quietly, looking down at the chair. The first recliners were designed in the early 1900s. They were used in sanatoriums. 
Your father taught me that. I looked around the living room, patted a hand on a column of Creighton Barrel catalogs, nearly four feet tall. Sounds about right. Helen pursed her lips like maybe she wanted to argue with me about my father, but then she thought better of it. Instead, she looked back at the chair. Now I could make out the impression that his body had made over the course of many years. It was like seeing a sarcophagus without the mummy in it. When I found him, Helen said, her voice trailed off, then she cleared her throat. He was in the chair, pointing. She raised her right arm, stiff, and extended her finger. I turned in the same direction. He would have been gesturing toward the kitchen or the steps that led up from the mudroom. Helen sniffed. It was like the last thing he saw was someone coming up the stairs. Thanks. So Ellen said, uh, now I gotta ask people to guess. I feel like... Mountains they of Madness. Yeah, there we go, there we go. Well done. If anyone has anything for Victor or Julie to sign, come up and get it done. Unfortunately, we don't have a bookseller these days. And uh, enjoy yourself, drink a little bit more, and we'll see you next month. Thank you. You have been listening to the Fantastic Fiction at KGB podcast, recorded live at the KGB bar. I'm Rajan Khanna. We hope you enjoyed what you heard, and we thank you for listening. We also wish to thank Gordon Linzer for providing the audio. And always, thanks to our many fans of Fantastic Fiction at KGB for supporting us all these years. See you next month.